The Bible reading today comes from John chapter 17 and it's to be found on 1083 in the church Bible, the one that's just in front of you. There's a black one underneath the seat in front. So it's John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Now, Jesus had been talking to his disciples and he had been telling them that their grief and their whole sorrow would be actually turned to joy as he told them about eternal life and what he would, that he would be with them for the rest of their lives and they could just come to him at any time and there would be peace with God. So after Jesus had said these things, he looked to heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Good morning, everyone. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you we can be here today. And I pray, Lord, you would speak powerfully, not just today, but through this whole term as we reflect on the incredible events, the last hours of Jesus' life and his death and resurrection for us, the whole passion. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I suspect very few people here today will probably know the lady that I've got on the screen behind me. Her name is Shirley Chaplin. And she's a nurse from England. And she, by the year of 2009, had served in the British health system for nearly 30 years. Uh, She was a very committed Christian. And since 1971, at the time of her confirmation, where she received uh, a cross, had worn that cross as a sign of her faith. And... She said these words, the crucifix is an exceptionally important expression of my faith and my belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with just eight months to go to her retirement, she was threatened with disciplinary action by the hospital after refusing to remove the necklace bearing the cross that she'd proudly worn for years. Her hospital, the National Health Service bosses, insisted that the cross must be removed from sight. 
they deemed it a breach of uniform policy and a health risk to her patients. It's a true story. Ms. Chaplin, or Mrs. Chaplin informed managers at the Royal Devon and Exeter uh, National Health Service Trust Hospital that she'd never actually had an accident injuring herself or another patient in three decades of nursing and would happily sign a disclaimer absolving the trust from any liability if she were injured by the one-inch silver object. The trust refused her risk assessment evidence despite the fact that there was not one recorded accident of an injury to a nurse or patient via the wearing of a necklace with a cross anywhere in the British health system. The trust insisted that the cross should not be visible. She even offered to have it just pinned on her lapel on the outside. She appealed through the court system and went all the way to the European Court of Appeal and lost at every turn. As a result, she ended up facing formal disciplinary action and had to accept a formal redeployment to non-frontline nursing duties. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but let me ask you this question. Why is a cross so important to this lady and so defining of her identity that she would risk her entire career? It's a very good question to ask. Why was it so important? Since 313 AD in the ancient Greco world, when emperors Constantine and Licinius issued the Edict of Milan, Christianity has had a legal status in the Roman Empire, which meant it was outlawed to persecute Christians. It didn't make it the official religion. Uh, that actually happened about 50 years later. But as a part of that edict, crucifixion as a method of torture and death was also outlawed. And from that time on, the Christian church has used the cross as the preeminent symbol of our faith. And you will see crosses all around the world. It's, if I can say, an astounding reality given that just 300 years prior, the cross was anything but a symbol of a faith and a symbol that someone would die for. It was a symbol of what you died on. Uh, the word crucifixion is where we get the English word excruciating. In other words, incredible pain. And crucifixion was most frequently used to punish political or religious agitators, pirates, slaves, or those who had no civil rights. In 519 BC, uh, Darius, the king of Persia, crucified 3,000 political opponents in Babylon. It was a political statement. How do you make it? Well, you crucify them. Uh, there was another Judean king and high priest, Alexander Yanius, 88 BC. He crucified 800 Pharisaic opponents. Again, a statement. And as we well know, in 32, 33 AD, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had Jesus of Nazareth crucified, dead and buried. And yet now it is the symbol of Christians and the church all around the world. Why is that so? Why is the cross so central to us? that it defines our jewellery, our architecture, and we will make a stand for it regardless of the cost. Well, that's the journey we're going on over the next eight to ten weeks. 
Uh, we've been going through John's Gospel for those who have not been with us, uh, and I think it's the fourth year of the journey, and we're going to finish the journey this year. I think we'll have a party at the end. And uh, this term, we're going to look at chapters 17 through to 21, finishing on the week after Easter. Uh, we're going to stop for three weeks and think deeper about the cross and the atonement, as well as have a week uh, which we did earlier in the uh, late last year in terms of an encouragement Sunday. But the goal of the series, and my prayer is this as we go through this term, is that we are going to be impacted either for the first time or in a fresh way as we reflect on the incredible events of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross. The Apostle Paul said this about the cross in relationship to his life, and they are stunning words. Because it's worth noting, this is probably the first or second letter that he wrote, It's probably only 10 years after the event of his whole life being turned upside down, where prior he had seen the cross as an anathema in terms of faith and religion. And it was incomprehensible how anyone could ever follow a Messiah who had been crucified. It made no sense. And yet, encountering the Lord Jesus Christ who had died and was risen... He writes this about the transformation that had taken place in his life. Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say, he boasted in many things prior to this. His whole religious heritage, his performance as a Jew. But he says, actually, may now I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words... My whole life has been turned upside down. I don't boast in anything except for the Lord Jesus and the fact that he was crucified and the world has died to me. I now live for him. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, open up to page 1083. We're going to begin the journey at chapter 17. And we're only going to look at five verses. And let me say, I could preach on the first verse for an hour. Uh, So I have my stopwatch running here. We're a little bit behind time at the moment and I'll try and keep on time. But this chapter, chapter 17, is holy ground, if I can put it that way. It's often called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. We're going to look at it over three weeks. It's the most intimate and detailed description and insight into the inner life of the Son of God and his relationship with the Father. Now, I could preach a sermon for an hour on the Trinity here, because that's what you're engaging And there is a mystery here as you see the Son in the most intimate way talking with his heavenly Father. Let me read from verse 1. He says, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Now, three times in John's Gospel during Jesus' earthly ministry, we're told that his hour has not yet come. It is not time for his glory to be displayed. It happens when his mother wants him to do a party trick at Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. It happens when religious leaders come to arrest him, to kill him, and he says, no, I'm not going to do it now. But when the Greeks turn up in Jerusalem in the last week of his life, he says, now the hour has come. There's a real sense the world has now come to see Jesus. And three times, once in John chapter 12, in the next chapter in verse 13, as he washes the disciples' feet, and now as he prays, he says those words, Father, the hour has come. 
And what he's referring to is the hour of his death on the cross. And the focus of John's gospel in these last chapters becomes a reflection upon his death and then his resurrection. It's the passion. And when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross, it is no accident. Uh, He has waited for this moment. His death was central to the plans and purposes of God. His death was the centerpiece of God's plan for salvation. His death would reveal to us what God is truly like. His death would show us how we can know and experience him. His death would show what it means to follow him. It is the event that defines our faith. It is the heart of our faith, the cross. And the hour had come, the time for his betrayal. And it was the time for him to be mocked. The time for his body and soul to be laid bare. It was the time before humanity and before his heavenly father that he would be tortured and killed on a Roman cross and experience not just the worst of humanity, but he would face the wrath of God. And what we see in just these first five verses is the cross reveals to us the place of glory, the person of authority, and the nature of eternal life. I'm going to spend most time on these first verse and verse 4 and 5, the cross as the place of glory. Have a look with me at verse 1 and then 4 and 5. Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And then in verse 4 and 5, he repeats the thought, I've brought you glory on earth by finalizing or finishing the work you gave to me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Um, If I was to ask you a question, uh, what is your most glorious moment in your life to date. I wonder what you would say. Where, if people looked at you, would they see you at your best in terms of who you are and what you've done? Where is your glory revealed, is what I'm asking. And I think in reflecting on that, I thought of uh, achievements that we might have done. I can think of things in my early life. Uh, I can think of things in later life. Uh, It may be your family is your crowning glory, and that's a great thing to have. I don't think anyone here would say, actually, you're going to see my glory most on the day I die. That's when my glory will be revealed. Now, in times of warfare, there is no doubt that men and women have died gloriously on a battlefield as they literally gave up their life for the safety of those they were fighting with and for the sake of peace and their country, etc., etc., And that's incredibly heroic, but it's not a normal thing. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And I want you just to reflect deeply on these couple of verses this morning. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've had trouble writing the sermon in the sense that there is something deeply profound about what Jesus is saying here that I want you to reflect on and meditate upon. He's saying, Father, you know the glory I had before the world began. And you see here the trinity here. The Son is talking to his Father. And before the world began, he was the glorious Son which all the angelic hosts would have acknowledged and worshipped as the Son of God in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in their relationship together with our Heavenly Father, their Father. 
He's saying, glorify me now in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In other words, in my death on the cross, I want people to see my glory, which, and here's the incredible thing, I want to be glorified so that I can glorify you, Father. The hour of my death has come. I think a natural view of death and particularly the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ is that it was humiliating for human eyes like the rabbi Saul who became Paul. It was failure, it was defeat. It would have been filled with shame not to mention the pain and the suffering. It is anything but glorious. To die as a traitor to your country, spiritually speaking, condemned, an enemy of the state. But Jesus is saying, this is actually the moment you see my glory. And I want you to see this because this is for the Father's sake. I want them to see how glorious you are through what I do. I'll get you to think about this through the angle of one of the most difficult questions that Christians are asked, but not just Christians, anyone who is a thoughtful person will grapple with this question. It's the question of suffering and evil. Doesn't matter where you come from, what background, what faith, This is a difficult question, and there are no easy answers to it. Where is God when suffering occurs? And I could catalogue all manner of different ways that we see, we experience, we connect with suffering in this world. Where is God? I imagine all of us at some point in our life have asked that question. I've asked it. I've asked it for myself. I've asked it for others. When death comes early, when cancer strikes indiscriminately, when evil seems to reign and there's no apparent justice, where are you, God? It's a question that is difficult not just for Christians but for anyone. And what is God like that suffering should exist? Does he not care? Now, there are no easy answers to this question. There's no pat line that I can trot out, and please don't ever try to. But the one thing I would say is this. When you look at the cross, there is something profound going on. Because there you find a God whose glory is revealed in the way he suffers. In the way he cares. In the way he immerses himself in this world of suffering and pain. To the extent that Jesus gave everything up. And left his glory that he had before the creation of the world behind as he took on human form. 
and then dies the most horrendous death, humanly speaking, but spiritually speaking, even worse, because he faces the wrath of God at the cross. And when he's saying, this is now the time you'll see my glory, he's saying, this is the time you're going to see me at my greatest. And you see Jesus' glory not by what he has, which is often the way we'll display our glory in this world. We'll we'll put our trinkets and our accomplishments out for all the world to see. No, he puts that all behind him. He empties himself, is what Paul says in Philippians. You see his glory by what he gives up. He gave up his power. He gave up his authority. He gave up his pre-incarnate glory. He gave up everything. He gave up his title as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He gave up all his possessions as the creator of the universe. And eventually he gives up his life and suffers and dies. And it's to reveal how great he is. But it's all part of God's plan to save us and to restore us and to enable us to come back into fellowship with him and to give us hope that there will one day be a day when there is no suffering and where evil is overcome and where every tear is wiped away. And he enters into the midst of the darkness himself to enable healing and restoration and hope and forgiveness to take place. For any who would come. And so as he comes to the night before his death, he is praying, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, that we may see the wonder of the incredibly gracious and loving and holy and powerful God. It's at the cross that we see the glory of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, secondly, the cross reveals the person of authority. I'm going to spend a lot less time on these last two points. We read on, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you had given him. Jesus now prays, reflecting on what the Father has given him as the Son, and he's been given authority. Uh, It's an incredible statement. You've granted him authority. He's got authority over all people. And what does he do with that authority? Unlike the despot rulers or politicians of this world who use authority for their own means to line their own pockets and feather their own caps, he takes his authority and lays his life down so that we can be part of his family. And he pays the price that we deserve. And flowing from that is that he, risen from the grave, has the authority to give eternal life to those the Father has given him. And he calls people to come to him, those chosen by the Father. And in God's mercy, he calls us to himself, come follow me, and he gives us eternal life. And he can give eternal life because of what he's accomplished on the cross where he lost everything, where he gave up everything and where he suffered and bled and died and faced God's wrath in our place. And on this day where I announced the death of really one of the great ones of St. Matthew's over the last 50 years, Jan Tricker, 
It's worth remembering and knowing this. Jan was one of those saints who had heard the voice of Jesus calling her to come to him. And she did that many years ago. And there's an incredible privilege to be with people in their last days when you just see their faith and assurance and confidence they have in the Lord. She told one of the visitors that she actually didn't want to have too many Christians visit because she knew where she was going. She wanted to have time to share with those who didn't know where they were going. You should see the passage she's got preached out, uh, picked out for the funeral. I said, really, you want that, Jan? Absolutely. She'll be preaching from the grave. <laughs> it's a wonderful passage. You'll have to come to the funeral to uh, hear it being read and spoken. Uh, we will let everyone know when it's on. But it's on a day like today where you realise the comfort and the wonder of what Jesus has done. He gives us eternal life. We don't earn it, we deserve it. We don't deserve it, we just receive it with thanksgiving and repentance. Well, the third thing is the cross becomes the doorway to eternal life. And let me say, I could preach for a whole hour on this verse. I won't. But if you want to know what eternal life is, have a look at verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you. I want you to think about those words. This is eternal life, that they know you. He's talking about his heavenly Father. That's what eternal life is. It is to know the only true God, and he says, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what eternal life is. I suspect that most, if not all of us, have insurance policies of some sort that we've signed up for. I won't get you to put your hands up. Um, It's, in worldly wisdom, a good, smart thing to do. You have insurance, and you can get insurance for just about anything. I read this week uh, that if you're in Japan, the avid golfers there, and you play Japan, some of them will even get insurance for if they hit a hole-in-one. And apparently, it's $65 a year because the culture and the practices in Japan, if you hit a hole-in-one while you're playing with your mates, you have to host a big party and then buy them gifts and drinks. And it could cost thousands of dollars. So you can insure against it. Let me say, I don't think I'd have to take it out. (laughs) We can insure just about anything. And the way insurance works is you pay your bills, you put it in the filing cabinet or you store it in the cloud, ripped away ever you do it. And if I can put it this way, it's in your back pocket and you know it's okay and you get on with life. I often think that sometimes when people hear that eternal life is a gift, they think of it as an insurance policy for the afterlife. Something that you take out and then you put it in your back pocket or the filing cabinet or store it in the cloud, and then you forget about it. And of course, you'll profess faith. But that's what insurance is about, making sure you're right for eternity, eternal life. I've got eternal life insurance. That is not what insur- that's not what eternal life is. Look again at that verse, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you. And I think a better way of describing what Jesus is saying here is this. Um, when you come into relationship with God, you receive life 
and you become part of God's family, you're adopted, and you receive a life that goes on forever, and it's a life that is intimately relational. It's about knowing God and knowing his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know him. We walk with him. It starts now. It goes on forever, and that's the reality of eternal life. We actually have received life now. That's why in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And he spoke about when the Holy Spirit comes, streams of living water will flow within us. There's this sense of we've encountered the life of God. And what's profound here is it's the Trinity talking, the Son talking to the Father, and it's this sense of which we are now incorporated into the life of God himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when that happens, your whole life is turned around and it starts when you meet God at the cross. And you encounter him and you encounter his grace and forgiveness. And you turn around, you repent, and you start walking with him. And I couldn't think of a better day to give tribute to Jan. Because if you knew Jan, you knew she was someone who walked with God. And the remarkable thing about Jan is so many people know parts of her life. I don't think many people know all of the things she's done. Because there's so many different things. I remember us at the church being shocked when we saw a page on the Manly Daily about how she'd served the Manly Savers Rugby Club for 30 years washing the uniforms. I bet you they don't know all the stuff. She ran the crèche here for 35, 40 years. And I know that there's adults here who are in the congregation whose kids are in the crèche, but they were in the crèche first with Jan before their kids. Did you know she used to come down here, rain, hail or shine, 7 o'clock every Tuesday morning to pray? Even when it was pouring, she would catch the bus down. She didn't have a car. Did you know when the pubs were at their most violence, do you know what her response was? She said to my wife, we need to go and pray for them, we need to go and visit them. Can you bake a cake and we'll go and tell them we're praying for them? And my wife and Jan went and saw the head publican at the North State and just said, we are praying for you, we've got a cake for you. That was Jan. Did you know she was a registered visitor for the mental health unit, East Wing? She trained also at the Northern Beaches because she had a deep love for those on the edge here in Manly. Now, why do I mention all this? Because at the heart of Jan was she walked with God and she just prayed and... There was no sense that she just had an eternal life policy. She had life already with God. And she was walking in that life daily. And she used to say to me, Bruce, I'm praying for you. Don't worry, it'll be all right. In this kind of simplistic manner, but yet there was this profound reality and depth to Jan that you just knew she was praying and everything would turn out okay. Don't worry, Bruce, we'll just pray. And off she'd go. And you see, that's what eternal life is. It is actually encountering the life of God that flows from the cross. Where our shame, our guilt, our sin is washed away. And we're adopted into his family as his children. When Shirley Chaplin was asked to remove her cross... They just thought they were asking for a piece of jewellery to be hidden. 
But for Shirley, it was her whole identity. And it didn't matter what they said to her or what they threatened her with. There was no way she was going to back down. Because she had met the living God at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and been totally transformed. And for her to live was Christ and to die was gain. (coughs) Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your incredible grace and love for us in the Lord Jesus. As we begin this journey, may we meet you afresh at the cross and encounter your love and grace and forgiveness and hope that we find there in Jesus' name. Amen.